invite you to take your Bibles and please turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Gospel of Mark chapter 4 as we continue our exposition through this exciting, fast-paced Gospel of which we have been on for some months now. And this really is a picture of the purpose of the coming of Christ. As we look at the Gospel of Mark at the very beginning, we see Jesus comes on the scene. The first words recorded by Mark out of his mouth, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the Gospel. As you know, much of the Gospels, probably a fourth to a third of it, take up the last week of our Lord's life and then the post-resurrection appearances that take place. And so large portions of the life of our Lord, a large section of the Gospel recording the life of our Lord, really are summed up into that one final week. And what was that final week? That was the Passion Week. That's when Jesus entered into Jerusalem as they, they praised and then they quickly turned and said, crucify, and He was sent to a cross leading to His atonement for unworthy sinners. And really, that's, that's the good news of the Gospel. And so, all of this is leading up to that. And, and really, what we have recorded is just His earthly ministry, which is just a few years of His 33 years of life. But I submit to you that you cannot be saved apart from Christ and Him crucified. And for some, that offends them. For some, they don't want to hear that. They want seven lessons of how to have a happy life or a happy marriage or some kind of a pep talk. But the Gospel is simply this, that Christ came and died for unworthy sinners on the cross. And so as we continue in the section that we're in, as we've begun the parables, and we're in the parable of the sower, this is a vital section, and one of which I felt the conviction to slow down and go very slow and to take one week for each type of soil. This is part three of this, and so we'll be examining the thorny soil or the worldly heart. This is a vitally important parable, as I said. This is probably the largest crowd that Jesus has spoken to, and he begins to speak with them in parables. And, and parable is simply an a, uh, earthly story with a heavenly meaning, varying length, designed to illustrate a truth, especially by comparison or simile. And so Jesus here uses this particular parable of the sower Who is the sower? The sower is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, but also lesser sowers who are preachers of the Word of God. What is the seed? He tells us very clearly in chapter 4 and verse 14, the seed is the Word. The sower sows the Word. It is the Word that he is sowing. And we consider that first soil, which was the roadside or the pathway soil, which would be where the seed, as it was scattered, it landed in various types of soil, And the first soil is that of a really a pathway, which would be hard dirt, like a trail, that's hard and padded down. And Jesus tells us what? That the birds of the air come and eat the seed. Okay? Then later, when he gives, Jesus gives the exposition of this parable, so we're, we're in the realm of safety here. He tells us that what that is, is it's Satan coming and snatching the word of God that has been sown in your heart before it can bear fruit. That's the type of person that's too busy thinking about what they think is important during the preaching of the Word of God. Thinking about their work, their career, their 401k, whatever, rather than hearing the very words of the need for forgiveness of our sins to have peace with God. Then he moved on and 
mentioned about the, the rocky soil, as it's called, um, or the rocky ground in the NAS. And that's a picture of the shallow heart. By comparison, there is some soft soil there that the seed le- lands and actually germinates and grows for a time. But what does Jesus say? The sun comes, and the heat of the sun causes the plant to wither away. And what is that a picture of? That's a picture of someone that is exuberant and receives the gospel with joy initially. But when what Jesus says is when the, tri- when the, when the sun arises, um, it causes them to wither away. They are temporary. And what that picture of the sun is, is affliction and persecution that it comes because of the Word of God. And so ultimately, they fall away, to use Jesus' words. That particular person is uh, joyful about the, uh, the gospel when he first hear it, hears it, but as soon as difficulty comes, they're out of here. And I've noted that time is one of the surest tests of one's profession and faith. And, and, and because in time, and then to be encouraged that it is God who causes us to persevere. He who began a good work will complete it. And so let's read the section. I'm not going to read the entire parable as I did the past two weeks, but uh, we're just going to read the sections pertaining to this. So I'd ask you to look at verse 7 of chapter 4, and then we'll read verses 18 and 19. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Down to verse 18. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns, and these are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word so that it becomes unfruitful. Let's pray once again before we look at this section. Our Father in heaven, we do confess that we are weak. Lord, that we can be fickle. It is so hard for us to remove cares and distractions just for an hour to focus and as it were to come to Your feet to learn of You. Yea, Lord, it is very difficult to sit down in our own privacy of our own homes in a quiet room and open up the Holy Bible to read for ten minutes without any cares or distractions entering into our minds. Lord, we are weak, and so we ask that You would give us ears to hear. Lord, that, that You would remove every care and distraction from us even now. Lord, that You would send the Holy Spirit to have dealings in each one of our hearts. That You would empower the one speaking that You would be pleased to meet with us in a very special way, even as You have promised to do in the corporate worship of Your people. We beg You, O Lord, to hear our cry. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as we come to this thorny soil, or as I'm calling it, the worldly heart, the soil represents the heart, obviously, I've mentioned that. As we come to this, this hits a little closer to home than the last two that we've looked at. Most of us here are professing Christians. Most of us are seeking to bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And yet the world seeks to press us into its mold. Romans chapter 12. And and we, we live in the United States of America, the land of prosperity, the land of riches. We we make more money than most of the world by far. And so this hits close to home. 
And some of us can become entangled with thorns around our feet of worldliness and it's hard to get loose. Now, that's true of even professing Christians. Those who are bearing fruit. But how much more those who are mere stalks among us but are bearing no fruit at all. And so this is a cause again for self-examination that even as Jesus says twice at the beginning and the end of this parable, he who has ears or he who has an ear, let him hear. And so may the Lord be pleased to help us. I've divided the text, or I've divided my points at least under three heads. The thorny soil explained very briefly. We'll look at how a worldly heart can be distracted and derailed. And finally, an exhortation to uproot thorns from our lives. So first of all, the thorny soil explained. Jesus says, reading it again, in verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it out, and it yielded no crop. Now, this is not a picture of huge thorn bushes over here, and some seed just happened to make its way down by the roots of those thorn bushes. This is a picture of soil that is soft and pliable, where the very seeds or the roots of old thorns remain under the soil. So to the sower's eye, the seed is being cast on what appears to be good soil, but what is underneath the soil is what is important. And the very seeds of briars and thorns lay there. And so as the good seed would rise up, perhaps next to it some distance, this seed rises up with the thorns and they grow together, is what Jesus says. It looked good from the top, but it was mixed with thorns and briars. In fact, Palestine is known for having huge thorn bushes and briars, some six, seven feet tall in that area. Big, burly ones, right? Um, my two sons were pulling some weeds this past week, and, and behind an orange tree was a weed below. Believe it or not, I felt like a sluggard. A weed that was taller than our fence. And so Calvin pulled it, and he came, and he held it like this. And with the root and everything, it must have been seven feet tall right next to a fruitful orange tree, and so, or right behind it, so it was obscured from our view. But that's the idea here, is that they sprang up together, both growing with vigor until it reached, as it were, the green ear of corn, and yet it never does ripen or bear fruit. It is choked out. It is overtaken by the thorns. It does receive nourishment for a time. It grows. It becomes tall. From all appearances, there's a healthy stock there, but ultimately it is overtaken. Reminded of the words of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, where it says, And thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among the thorns. So these years, they make a good showing for a season. This one too, as with the other um, hearts, hear the Gospel proclaimed. They actually hear the Word. Again, we're not talking about those at the beach or in Balboa Park or those that have never stepped foot into a church. We're talking about those that are in the hearing of the proclamation of the Word of God in each one of these soils. That's the way it was for the Lord Jesus when He preached. J.C. Ryle makes this observation. <clears throat> he says, after explaining that there's some external reformation with these type of hearers, he says, to go so far and to yet not go further. To see so much and not see all. 
To approve so much and yet not give Christ the heart is most deplorable. And it is deplorable. Some get so close. Some enter in and they become so close as it talks about in Hebrews 6. They've even, as it were, taste of the Holy Spirit. This one that Jesus is speaking of has the leaves of profession. There's green leaves there. But there is ultimately no fruit. And so as Jesus says, the thorns choke out this particular soil. The idea is being consumed with the things of the world so that you become unfruitful. As Luke's Gospel says, they bring no fruit to maturity. There might even be some bud of some type of, whether it's corn or whatever, it's irrelevant, but it never comes to become edible fruit. I remember sometime right before we were married, probably 17, 18 years ago, trying to plant a couple of actual corn plants. I heard corn grows really easy, and (laughs) nothing really became edible on there. It was all absolutely a ruined crop and a ruined effort of a whole spring and summer of watering it, you know, faithfully and all of that. But that's the idea here is that it grows and there's, there's, you know, it's four or five, whatever, you know, tall, but there's no fruit. This is the inevitable result of a double-minded man. This is a result of one that can become so entangled in the, the things around us that, that, that they never bears fruit, consumed with worldly cares and pleasure. One of the Puritans said, worldly cares are great hindrances to profiting from the Word. They eat up much energy of the soul which should be spent on divine things and divert us from our duty. So we need to not allow the thorn bushes. Don't allow the thorn bushes of your life to grow and to overtake you so that you you become suffocated, as it were, from thorns and briars all around you. All these cares and concerns for the world. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Really, what's the root sin of that? It's unbelief. Unbelief that God will care for you, that He will take care of those things. Moving on, Jesus Gives that simple introduction and then now the exposition here. And the worldly heart is distracted and derailed from bearing fruit. See, the reality is is that the the, the world paints a false picture of reality. (laughs) You used the word reality twice. And so all of the tinsel and all of the glitter that the world has to offer, all of the tinsel of Hollywood and, and all of this thing paint a wrong picture of what the world and what life is all about. It's deceptive. And so to get so caught up in the tabloids or what's going on in Hollywood or what the newest movies are and all of that, I'm not condemning watching a movie at all, but, but to be so consumed with all of that, we can forget what's really important in our lives to be a light to a lost and dying world. When we begin to become so much marked out that there's no difference between us and the world, there's a, there's a problem. Because if we're not lights like we're called to be, there is a problem. You young people, you need to begin practicing now 
What is really important in my life? Am I going to be caught up with the Justin Biebers, the One Direction, the the whatever, you know, Britney Spears or whatever kind of thing is the, the newest buzz? Am I going to be caught up with that and just swept away? Or will I remember the simple primary things of living a life that is faithful and pleasing to God? I want you to notice with me what Jesus says. He says in verse 18 that this seed was sown among the thorns. Again, more than likely, in my study, I'm convinced, the seeds of thorns because they grow up together. Remember, they spring up together. And this is the one that hears the word. But Jesus says there's three things that choke the word. This is the word of God, which is all powerful, right? But these three things choke the word in this person's heart and it becomes unfruitful. And we're going to look at each of these in turn. Notice what he says. First, he says the worries of the world. By excessive worry and care, in the world, last week I gave you that illustration. If, if you had planted two, two plants five feet apart and you came and looked at the shallow, shallow ground sprout, it would be actually taller than the one that would ultimately bear fruit. But remember, it withers away. Well, in this case, you see them both growing. They appear to be strong. You come out eight weeks later, you know, whatever the corn plant's four feet tall, looks like there's promising fruit on both plants. But you come out eight weeks later and you see one with all this fruit and the other one with this puny, rotten fruit, maybe some thorns or extra weeds down by its, its, um, where it comes out of the soil. That's the picture here. Excessive care and worry about the things of the world. Listen, when Paul wrote to Titus, he says, the grace of God has appeared. That is, has come on the scene with mighty power. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But notice it says, instructing us, the same Gospel instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What's the motivation to do that? Well, the grace of God has appeared. He's brought salvation to those who are His children. And and, and He's brought salvation so we're, we're instructed to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. He goes on to verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, future hope motivates present behavior. How you live today is affected by what you hope, where you hope to go in the future. And if you've got no hope, and you're empty and you're lost, what's the point? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But no, we have a hope that is sure. A a hope that cannot be shaken. A hope of the appearing of even the Son of God, Jesus Christ. These are so wrapped up in the pursuit of worldly possessions that they have very little time left over for serving God. can be so consumed with things just even such as your personal appearance you know, how you look and all of that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with wanting to look presentable. But some people are consumed and they spend their lives about having the perfect body, the perfect this, 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 and that. Some have called this type of heart a crowded heart. And that is the idea here because Jesus says there's three things here that enter in to make it become unfruitful. It's a crowded heart. 
there's so much other stuff going on with worldliness and the pursuit of riches and the lust for other things that there's really no room left for Christ and serving Him and loving Him and worshiping Him. There's no room left for Jesus. James states it well when he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself to be an enemy of God. See, there should be a distinct difference between you and the world. And and, uh, this is a strong word. Friendship with the world, you make yourself to be a what? Enemy of God. Now again, I, I want to qualify this. What I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, that we need to withdraw and all move to the mountains, right? So that we can be separate from the world. I'm not saying that at all. Some are laughing. They understand. That's not me. That's not what I'm saying at all. We are to have an impact with the lost and dying world, but they need to know that there's something radically different about us and where our hope lies. Now I want to qualify. There's a place for legitimate cares. To care for your family to want to protect your family as a man, as a father, to provide for your children, to be able to pay bills, to plan for the future. There is a place for that. The Proverbs and the rest of the Word of God speak to the wisdom of that, that that is a good and that is a noble thing. Having concern for one another in the church is a good care. Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body Okay, no division, but that the members may have the same care for one another. See, this is where the one another's brotherly love comes in. That we truly do care about our brother, our sister, the struggles that they're going through. We enter in into their suffering. We rejoice with those who rejoice. These are legitimate cares. This is the mark of a healthy church, a caring and praying for one another, involved in one another's lives. Paul wrote to, the, wrote to the Philippians from a prison cell and says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who would genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's a good concern. Concern for how this church is doing as Paul is in prison. And then the Apostle Paul, of course, as he, in his autobiography, 2 Corinthians, as he lists in chapter 12 all of the beatings and sufferings and being thrown out to sea and being flogged and all of that, he says, apart from all of that external stuff of which I bear the bruises and the marks and the, the wounds and the scars of all that suffering, he says, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of what concern for the churches a legitimate concern, a concern for the blood-bought people of God, not a concern of how He's going to get out of the next persecution that could be coming around the corner, but a concern for the people of God. So there's a place for legitimate concern, brethren. But what Jesus is here saying is that it's the worries of the world so that we just become worrywarts and we're swept away from the Lord and from His people. Secondly, He says, and the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. Now, maybe someone's sitting here saying, huh, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich, right? 
Well, I submit to you that it does. Um, Both the poorest person in the world and the richest person in the world can be deceived by riches. Do you believe that? Absolutely. What is the poor? The poor person thinks, if only I can attain this level of standard of living, all of my troubles and problems will go away. Why do you think the lottery is so popular? It's people on welfare spending our tax dollars buying lottery tickets in hopes that they can get off welfare and <laughs> or whatever, right? It's this hope of, if I can attain this level, then all my problems will go away. I don't need to convince you of the, the falsehood of that. But also the rich person. It prompts so much worry and care and concern of how to keep what they have. You see, it takes all that effort to how to keep what they have. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul sums it up well. He says, but those who want to get rich fall in temptation and a snare. You know what that is? That's stepping into a trap. And it's, we're, we're hooked. It's a snare. And many foolish and harmful desires, which, notice the language, plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing after it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a griefs. Again, there's a rightful place for budgeting, planning, right? And, and, and all of that. It's maybe saving something for retirement. There's a legitimate place for that. But when you become consumed with how I can become rich, Paul says very clearly here that it is a snare that has plunged many men into ruin and destruction. He doesn't say which might, but which has plunged men into destruction. One of the richest people in the world, several years ago, John Rockefeller, was asked, how much money is enough? You know what his answer was, right? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. One of the richest men in the world, as far as material dollars or whatever, but he says, just a little bit more. Studies show that the average person thinks about money many times a day. But the reality is is that most of us have more than enough. In fact, by the standard of the world, if you are not working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, just to put food on the table for your family and to have a shelter over your head, you're rich. Because much of the world works like that. 60, 70 hours a week just to make the bare minimum necessity. See, the reality is is we have more than enough food and clothing. We're going to be studying the topic of fasting in uh, Sunday school. I I hope many of you will come. (laughs) Fast from whatever you had planned and that you would come for that discussion. Uh, But the reality is, is that we haven't been forced to miss a meal probably in your whole life, have you? And yet, much of the world goes hungry. You see, we are called to live in simplicity You know, it's not about just a little bit bigger house, just an extra car, just a little bit more in the 401k. And that's why Jesus here says that that the deceitfulness of riches can choke out the Word. I love this proverb. I memorized it a long time ago. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. As soon as you set your eyes upon it, it will grow wings and fly away. It certainly makes itself wings, 
like an eagle and flies away. J.D. Rockefeller, once again, is quoted as saying later in his life, I have made my millions, but they have brought me no happiness. You see, they're deceitful because they promise what they can't deliver. Would you agree with that? It promises what, what can't be delivered to you. And Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. Either you'll love the one and hate the other. You can't have two masters. We just sang, Riches I heed not, more, nor man's empty praise. And yet some, even in the church, can be swayed by the newest business model, the newest multi-level marketing thing. And I'm not saying every multi-level marketing thing is wrong. But when it begins to consume your time to where the meetings are on Saturday, the meetings are on Sunday, and I've got to start selling, and so I'm going to sell to the people in the church and all of that. And, and, and it begins to pull you away so that you're withdrawing and you're forsaking the, the fellowship of the saints. There's a problem. It can begin to pull you away from God's people and the Lord working weekends in the hopes of getting rich, or there's an overtime opportunity at work, and hey, I can make time and a half or double time, and wow, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Okay, yeah, that's more important. No, we shouldn't ever forsake the gathering of God's people if at all possible and within our ability. And you know the reality is, is these hopes of getting riches, and even if you do make it big and get rich, you're not taking anything with you. Do you think you are? <laughs> You're not taking anything with you. Psalm 49, verse 16, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich or when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he carries nothing away. His glory will descend after him. So whatever pomp and glory and popularity you may have in this life descends as quickly as you enter the grave. Our real need is 21st century Christians living in the United States is simple contentment. Paul said, whatever circumstance I am in, I have learned to be content. He knows what it's like to go without. He knows what it's like to have abundance. But it boils down to being content. And I commend to you Jeremiah Burroughs' excellent book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, a Puritan work that's very easy to read and understand. He says this, he describes contentment as a work of the Spirit indoors, inside of us. That is not from external circumstances. He goes on to say, I find sufficiency and satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. Read Samuel Rutherford's letters written from a prison cell in Scotland in 1840 and 41 to the members of his church. Read those letters and how they ooze of love to Christ and being, finding all of his satisfaction in Christ. Well, Jesus gives a third way that can choke out the Word, and that is, notice what he says, the desire for other things. The desire for other things. This is something that's unique to Mark's Gospel. It's worded differently or it's not even included in Matthew's account here. But the desire for other things. The word for desire is the word lust okay, in, in, the, in the Greek New Testament. And it can mean desiring after good things. Longing after that which is good and righteous. 
More often, it means longing after, lusting after things that are inordinate and inappropriate, something forbidden. And it's open-ended here. It's the idea of, of anything that would become between you and the Lord. Luke states it, states it in uh, 8.14 as the pleasures of this life. We read it in our Scripture reading, but the Apostle John warned those first century believers when he said, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty clear, isn't it? For all that is in the world, and then he describes three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this world is passing away. Also, all of its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Again, the Gospel instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to positively to live sensibly and righteously in this present age. Are you living sensibly today? Are you striving after righteousness or is worldly desires what is consuming your life? Are you carried away with various lusts? I know I've referenced Pilgrim's Progress last week, and I'm going to do it this week as well because this is perfectly fitting. And Pilgrim's Progress, a beautiful allegory of the Christian's realization from the Word of God that he's in the city of destruction and must run for escape. And Evangelist is there to point him along the way, several times along the way, and points to ultimately the narrow way and then the celestial city and so on his uh, on his pilgrimage early in his pilgrimage he comes to interpreter's house picture of the holy spirit revealing seven things of vital importance for his walk and in the sixth thing that he shows him is a man in an iron cage and i'm just going to read part of this so he took him by the hand and led him into a very dark room and there sat a man in an iron cage Now to look on the man seemed very sad. And he sat with his eyes looking down to the ground and his hands folded together and he sighed as though it would break his heart. Then Christian said, what means this? An interpreter bid him to talk to the man. And the man answered, I am what I once. I am what I once. What I was, not once. What were you once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor both in my own eyes and in the eyes of other, I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city. I had then even the joy at the thoughts that I would enter in. Well, what are you now? The man says, I am a man in despair, and I am shut up in it, as in this iron cage, and I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot get out. But how did you come into this condition? The man says, I left off to watch and to be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lust. I sinned against the light of the Word and the goodness of God, and I've grieved His Spirit, and now He is gone. I've tempted the devil, and He has come to me. I've provoked God to anger, and He has left me. And I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Christian, trembling and startled, turns to interpreter. Is there no hope for such a man as this? Interpreter bids him to ask the man. And so he asked him, And it goes on and he says, not at all. And then he says, but why? The Son of the Blessed is very pitiful. 
The man says, I have crucified the Son to myself afresh. I have despised his cross. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood an unholy thing, and I have done all this despite the Spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises, and there now remains nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of a certain judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour me as an adversary. And then he asks, and how did you bring yourself into this condition? And this is what I want you to hear. For the lust, pleasures, and profits of this world and the enjoyment in which I did then promise me with much delight. But now every one of those things bite me and gnaw at me like a burning worm. But canst thou now repent and turn? Man says, God has denied me repentance. He goes on to say, O eternity, eternity, how shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? Uh, I read that as a sober reminder that we are called to watch and to be sober. That we are called to not be so entangled in these things of the world. That we're, and really what this is the picture of is not a man that's lost his salvation. He even says, I was a professor. I had myself fooled that I was in Christ. I was even with great delight looking forward to entering heaven. He had himself fooled. He even fooled those around him. And this is a picture of an apostate. And one who has been awakened enough to the terrors that await and the reality of God and the reality of hardening his heart against the Spirit of His grace. And now there is no hope. You remember Esau? He was denied repentance, though he sought it with tears. This is a picture of those who in Hebrews 6 have tasted of the heavenly gift and ultimately fall away. This isn't a picture of an apostate. Well, let's look at some biblical examples, just two, very quickly. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 19 with me, please. Biblic- uh, Matthew 19. In verse 16 to 26, I'm going to read select verses. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Perhaps you're familiar with it. The man says, someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one good. But if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. And then he said, Which ones? Jesus tells him which ones. Verse 20, The young man said, All of these I have kept but what is still lacking? Here we have a picture of a very religious man. Man that's keeping, seeking to keep the commandments of God. A, a man that wants to know what is that good thing. They're being deceived by there's some good thing I can do. And then that guarantees me, right? Um, which is very common. Um, and so Jesus very pointedly in verse 21 to 23 tells him what is lacking. Jesus saw the thorns of the deceitfulness of riches Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, notice he doesn't dispute with him about all of these others, you know, honoring father and mother, not committing murder, not committing adultery. He doesn't dispute with him about that, but he says, there is one thing I see. If you wish to be complete, he says, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But the young man heard this statement and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. 
Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus saw the deceitfulness of riches in this man's life. Matthew 8. Turn back a few pages. See some here consumed with various cares. Again, I've qualified what I'm saying with there's a place for legitimate cares. This is a picture where um, discipleship is really being um, tested here. Verse 19. Then a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me to first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, in both of these situations, the first, the scribe, is, is, is concerned about comfort. It has great care about being comforted in verses 19 to 20, and then the other one wants to go bury his father. That's a noble thing, right? Isn't that honoring the fifth commandment and so forth? Of course it is. But what Jesus saw here was this man was making an excuse for not following Christ. He tells him, follow me. And it's not as though his father had just died. You know, I just got word I need to go bury him and then I'll come. His father was probably aged, probably older. And so he says, I've got to care for my father first before I can follow you. Jesus says, let the spiritually dead worry about burying the dead. We must be willing to let go of earthly cares. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. We must uproot the thorns that may be present in our life. And I hope some things that maybe have come to your mind. And I just want to emphasize the absolute necessity of repentance being present in anyone who professes faith in Christ. There must be a turning away from sin. And and these types of hearers, they have an unrepentant faith. They they grow for a while, but there's not a true repentance. And, And repentance is more than a change of mind. It literally means that, but it's a change of one's life direction. It's a turning away from the one thing and turning on to something else. We read it in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. See, there's a forsaking of the way. There's a forsaking of the thinking to put on new thinking, to renew our minds. And he goes on and says, and let him return to the Lord. And He will have compassion on him and to our God. And He will abundantly pardon as Paul is commending the church in Thessalonica in his first letter at the end of chapter 1, he, he's giving testimony of how they have turned from idols unto the living God. And so there's a turning away from the one thing and turning to God. Repentance is a gift of God. This is something that you can't go home and search on Amazon and buy. Take pills of repentance. This is something that is a gift from God of which you cry out to God that He would grant the gift of repentance. And by the way, repentance 
is something that happens when we initially come to faith in Christ, but repentance is vitally important through our Christian walk as well as we continue to confess our sins and turn from our sin. Listen to John Calvin. He says, everyone has a huge crop, a veritable forest of thorns. Few reach maturity. Hardly one out of ten people will take the trouble to cut back the thorns, let alone root them out. This is why many don't persevere. They take these things lightly. I read a story some time ago about a missionary in New Guinea. And there was a recently converted Indian under this man's ministry. And this recently converted Indian was seeking to pray. And to pray to God who he's now come to know. And he could not pray in peace. And so he came to the missionary uh, distraught and said he couldn't pray and the reason was because before his conversion he had planted some type of weed unto satan well they both went to the jungle to that spot and they carefully dug around it they carefully pulled all the dirt away as they would went down and they took up all of the roots of it they cut it up into small pieces and they laid it out in the sun so that it would dry out so there was no way that that would come back to life or germinate again And you see the the analogy. That is the picture of what we need to do with sin in our life. And sometimes we're content to just kind of brush the thing aside, but it's still in the ground waving and still getting strength. We We must dig deep down in a thorough repentance and mortifying of sin. Colossians 3, 5, Mortify therefore the members in your of your body which are upon the earth. Mortify means to kill, to put to death forever. No chance of coming back. John Owen in his great work in volume 6, The Mortification of Sin and Believers, he asked the question, do you mortify sin or do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Modern evangelicalism sometimes just says just the mere mental assent and a, 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 a light belief that Jesus Christ was, came in the flesh and died on the cross is enough to save. But Jesus makes it very clear that repentance is absolutely necessary. In Luke 13, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Repentance is absolutely necessary for saving faith. Now, just to qualify this, it's sometimes some of us grow at different paces, right? Some of there's different soils, there's different fertilizers. Some of us are slow growers, some are fast growers, some produce fruit very early on, some it takes a long time before they're bearing fruit. Well, Jesus goes on in Luke chapter 13, and he says, he gives this parable which I find encouraging. And I hope this encourages you if you're finding yourself. Where am I really at? And, and what fruit do I see? And, and to find hope if your trust is in Christ that you are truly one of His. Listen to this parable. A man had a fig tree which he had planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and I put in fertilizer 
then if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. You see what a picture that is? That is a picture of patience for slow growers. Let's fertilize it. Let's tend to that. Let's shepherd that. Let's encourage that. Let's love on that. Let's love on that plant. And and then see if there, there will be fruit ultimately in the end. Some grow slower than others, but the true convert, I think Jesus pegs it well in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid it again and for joy over it goes and sell all that he has to buy the field. It's giving up all for Christ because he is worth it, because there's nothing else in this world worth living for. Two quick points of application and we'll end. First is encouragement and caution. I'm encouraged, first of all, that I, there's so many of you that I see good fruit. There is evidence, there is good fruit, there is fruit that has borne fruit for many years, and I'm encouraged that I'm surrounded by so many um, that are bearing fruit. Maybe others of you need to ask, am I just a stock amongst fruit bearers? Am I producing good fruit? And we'll look at that next week in some detail. And I hope what will be a very balanced way. In John 15, Jesus gives this beautiful picture. You see, the key is our union with Christ. And He says here, I am the true vine and My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. Abide in Me. That's an imperative. It's a command. Abide in Me, I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. He goes on to say that apart from Me, you can do nothing. But the picture there is our union with Christ that we are attached to the vine. And that if we are bearing fruit, even fruit bearers are pruned from time to time for what purpose? So that they will bear more fruit, right? And the dead branches are cut and pulled away so that it does not sap life. Remember, you can't serve two masters. And and you parents, be sure that you're living your life in a way that does not show that you are a thorny ground here. Be sure that you're teaching your kids the importance of what it means to live for Christ. What it means to spend time with Christ every day in prayer and in Bible reading. To have family worship. To not forsake the gathering on the Lord's Day for whatever little whim might come come down the pike. But to make it an absolute priority so that your children, having been grown, can look back and say, I can see that this was vitally important and that they grow and they mold into that mold. Some miss worship on Sundays for sports. Those things are more important. What is that communicating to your children? Some skip prayer meetings. Oh, you know, it's the church will go on with or without me. We have other opportunities through the week to meet and an early morning prayer meeting a couple times a month. And, and, and sometimes I think it's the idol of sleep. It's the desire for these other things that can enter in. We must shovel away the small little seedlings of thorns and remove them completely. Secondly, treasure Christ above any worldly thing. Say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
You see, earthly toys and all of these kinds of things rust very quickly, don't they? They, they lose the glitz and the shine and the new car and the new car smell and all of that. that you know, worldliness is fleeting and will leave you empty. It is those who love Jesus that say He is precious. Seek more of Christ, not earthly possessions. Meditate on the wonder of the Gospel of Jesus Christ for unworthy sinners. What an amazing thing that the triune God would plan such a plan of redemption as to send the second person of the Trinity, the Incarnation, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die a grueling death on the cross for unworthy sinners. Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners is what matters. And when you meditate on that, it changes everything in your life and how you live. Our cry should be, as the hymn writer says, more love to Thee, O Christ. That is my cry. Can we say with Wesley, Jesus, lover of my soul, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in Thee I find. So I ask you the question, is Christ enough? No matter what your external circumstances, no matter what your standard of living, if you have faith in Christ and you've been redeemed, is Christ enough? Or is it Christ plus this, that, that, that? May the Lord work in our hearts. May the Lord be pleased to give us great assurance of the great salvation that He has granted. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your goodness to us. We thank You for Your Word, which does not lie, which has contained nothing but truth. Lord, may You have Your way with each one here. Lord, may we who are true believers uproot the thorns that might be seeking to overtake by the power of the Holy Spirit and the hope of the Gospel. Lord, for those who are entangled in thorns and have never borne fruit, would today be the day of salvation? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.